John chapter 4, verse 27. We're going to look uh, at those verses down to verse 42. The topic, the disciples return to Jacob's well and are shocked to find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. The title of our message, Samaritan Woman, Say What You Heard From Me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our text this morning. As always, Lord, we, we hope to gain from it insight for living, uh, uh, deepening our walk with Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would share with each heart something new and fresh and exciting for their own walk, Lord, something encouraging, something that will strengthen them, something that will overcome the uh, things that are happening in lives, Lord, that are being beaten down and folks that are in despair that they would raise above those circumstances, Lord, and know your love and grace, that we would feel this morning, Lord, that you are indeed a shield about us and the lifter of our heads. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. amen. Lady and the Tramp had two very different worldviews. Tramp, oh, come on, Pidge. Open up your eyes to what a dog's life can really be. i show you what I mean. Look down there. Tell me what you see, lady. Well, I see nice homes with yards and fences. It's my best lady. Exactly, life on a leash. Look again, Pidge. There's a great big hunk of world down there with no fence around it where two dogs can find adventure and excitement. And beyond those distant hills, who knows what wonderful experiences. Jesus revealed his worldview to his disciples after his talk with the Samaritan woman. She hurried back to the city to proclaim that the Messiah was at Jacob's well. Samaritans went out of the city and came to him. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Jesus viewed the world as a harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, lift your eyes to see the harvest. And number two, live your life to seed the harvest. Let's lift our eyes and see the harvest in, uh, starting in verse 28. Now, one definition of worldview says it is the decision-making filter that we use. It's the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter that helps us to understand and interpret and respond to every reality that we experience. It's, it's how we interpret the world, I guess, is an easier way to say it. Jesus spoke to the bad Samaritan at Jacob's well. There's no doubt she was saved in the encounter. We'll point out the evidence as we go. She was the first fruits of a greater harvest in that city. We're going to take the verses slightly out of order, starting with the disciples, and then we'll return to talk about the Samaritans. And so verse 28, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? It was taboo for a Jewish man to speak with a woman in public, much less a Samaritan woman. It was actually worse than they thought. She was a serial adulterer, married five times, and currently living with a man. The disciples wanted to but didn't ask the woman, what do you seek? There's a lesson in it for us. The disciples assumed she wanted something from Jesus. He was offering to give her something. Abundant life now and eternal life afterward were gifts she would be offered and receive. 
We need to be overly careful not to ever give the impression that we want something from non-believers. We want to give to non-believers. Salvation is all grace, no works, and the only profit to us is our joy in a person's transformation from darkness and death to light and life. And so uh, just in the back of our minds all the time, we should understand that we never want to come across as if we are asking for anything from unbelievers, except maybe their undivided attention. And so we have to be careful how we present various things when we're in a group setting or an individual setting, because after all, most people believe that they must do something for God in order to be approved. And our message is a grace message, so we can't preach grace and then turn right around and give the impression that uh, everything's going to fail if they don't help us in some way. And so I don't think we can be too careful in that area. The disciples wanted to but didn't ask Jesus, why are you talking with her? The message version of the Bible reads, no one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The word that comes to mind is slack-jawed, mouth hanging open from shock or confusion. Skip now down to verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They were on their way to Galilee by going through Samaria. It was logical to assume that they would have little to no dealings with Samaritans and that they would not linger there. At best, it was a pit stop for them to pick up supplies or rest. There are places you don't want to stop when traveling. I'm sure some of you have regular routes to go places that you like, and along the way, you hope uh, and pray. You become a prayer warrior at that moment, that you don't have a flat tire or run out of gas or anything like that. My hometown of San Bernardino is like that, sadly. The local newspaper recently ran a story saying San Bernardino and Riverside counties are the worst places in the United States to survive the zombie apocalypse. It's a real article. Researchers scored cities in four categories, the ability to defend against the zombie bite virus, the ability to contain the virus, the ability to find a cure, and the ability to outlast the epidemic with an ample food supply. Boston has the highest chance of surviving a zombie apocalypse, followed by Salt Lake City, Columbus, Baltimore, and Virginia Beach, also well positioned to fight World War Z. Uh, And so the disciples, they didn't want to stop in San Bernardino uh, or Riverside County. They wanted to keep moving. And so meanwhile, back at the well, your plans often need to be sacrificed when following Jesus. I know that I miss spiritual opportunities because I've planned my work and am working my plan. When I was a salesman, that was the mantra. Plan your work and work your plan. Uh, And so, you know, sometimes you're so focused in on what you're doing that you don't allow for interruptions. And, uh, but plans must often be sacrificed. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Let's refrain from criticizing the disciples for not immediately understanding what Jesus meant. Uh, Many times we will see them scratching their heads, trying to figure out what's going on. But I like to think of it this way, most cases. When you read the Bible, do you immediately understand what is being said? I don't. 
I have to read it and reread it and oftentimes consult commentaries even. And so uh, why criticize the disciples when we do the same thing? We read it, we don't quite understand it, uh, and, and we have the entire word of God and the Holy Spirit to help us. And, and so these guys, they just didn't know what Jesus was talking about, and so he makes it more clear. The encounter with the woman started with Jesus being weary and his disciples leaving him at the well. He was for sure hungry and thirsty, but he would not let the temporary needs of his physical body overrule a spiritual opportunity. He would never have this opportunity again, perhaps, to talk to this particular woman. More than that, Jesus was on a spiritual diet that required doing his Father's will. We can put it this way. Serving God nourished Jesus. Serving God nourished Jesus. It's become popular to think of serving God as depleting you. Sabbatical is a word I hear all the time. Ministers are encouraged to go away for extended periods. One organization that promotes sabbatical said, when you are busy with your work, family, or ministry, it can be hard to fit in caring for your own soul. This can lead to burnout or becoming spiritually stagnant. Prophet Elijah once took a sabbatical. After his success against the prophets of Baal, he fled Jezebel into the wilderness. Uh, you might say he was uh, burned out, I guess, and he fled. He ended up in a cave we can call the Cave of Blunders because Elijah complained that he was the only believer doing any work for God. Uh, the Lord revealed to him that he had 7,000 other servants who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And it was sort of the effectual end of Elijah's ministry because the next thing he did was anoint Elisha to take over for him. Uh, and so uh, not a good thing, his sabbatical. It didn't refresh him and he didn't come back stronger. If serving is what nourishes you, then withdrawing is the opposite of what you ought to be doing. The Lord sacrificed sleep to spend time with, the God, with God the Father. Mark 135, we read that Jesus went out to a solitary place, prayed to his Father during the night. Luke 6.12, we learn that he left his followers to spend the night in prayer at the foot of the mountain. The Apostle Paul says bluntly, and by the way, I think the Apostle Paul is a straightforward, blunt guy. You get that from reading him, that he, not, you know, not unkind, certainly very loving and compassionate, but he's one of those guys that just tells it like it is. And so in Galatians 6, 9, he says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And so I imagine somebody coming up to Paul and saying, you know, Paul, I'm just so weary from doing good. And he says, yeah, don't be that way. Get over it. Uh, wow. I need to find somebody else to talk to because Paul just doesn't get it. He said something similar to the Thessalonians. He said, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. God gave Jeremiah the granddaddy of all do not grow weary verses when he said, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? And so God was telling Jeremiah that, hey, up to now you've been keeping pace. Your ministry is like running with other men, but I'm calling you to run with horses. And up to now your ministry has been like walking along in sandy ground, uh, but now it's going to be more like being in a bog. So how are you going to do that? And the answer, of course, is by the power and enabling of God, the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said elsewhere that the laborers were few. He suggested we pray for more laborers. But what happens at your work when there is a lot of work but fewer workers? Well, you end up working harder and longer, don't you? It's not a matter of backing away and, you know, you don't go into your boss and say, you know, there's so much work to do here that I need time off uh, to get away from the work. And I was just thinking, I was having a conversation uh, a little bit earlier about some of this stuff and I was thinking about generations before ours and my dad, uh, you know, uh, from the greatest generation. If anyone ever suggested to my dad or, or people in that era that they needed more rest, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. We had to beg my dad to quit working Saturdays because uh, they had the shop. We all worked at the shop there, and my dad insisted that we work six days a week. And then what, he finally relented and, and let us work half a day Saturday, which was ridiculous because it ruins your Saturday anyway, right? And then finally, I think, it, it, you know, he was probably my age, uh, still doing mechanic work. He says, all right, we'll stay home on Saturday, but it's, you know, it, it just killed him to do it and stuff. And so some of this stuff that we, I'm just going to say one more thing and then I'll move on. We live in a very soft society. People have gotten soft uh, and we, we don't want to be that way in the ministry. Jesus said, doing the will of God nourishes me. I'm weary. I'm thirsty. I, I couldn't even make it into town because I'm sitting by the well, but all of a sudden I'm pumped, I'm hyped because I get to serve the Lord. And he says in verse 35, do not say you are still four, or there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Uh, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. Albert Barnes writes, grain when ripe turns from a green to a yellow or lighter color indicating that it is time to reap it. The crowd coming from Sychar to the well would have been wearing white outer garments typical of the culture. Jesus told his disciples to lift up their eyes and see a harvest of souls rather than a group of Samaritans. Farming is hard work year-round. However, in the simplest sense, farmers plant and then they wait until the harvest. I know that there's work going on all the time, but just from an overview perspective, you plant and then the plant comes and the harvest comes. Spiritual harvesting is completely different. It isn't work followed by waiting. We are to always be sowing or reaping what others have sown. There's a constant harvesting. It isn't a matter of waiting for the corn to you know, get mature or anything like that. There's always harvesting going on. And he who reaps, verse 36, receives wages, gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. John the Baptist labored in the wilderness. He sowed by baptizing Jews unto repentance as preparation for the coming king and his kingdom. He found joy in his work, once saying to his disciples, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John never saw the completion of his ministry. He would die a particularly gruesome death, never seeing the harvest that occurred on the day of Pentecost. Jesus' disciples would reap that harvest. Peter led 3,000 to Jesus on that glorious birthday of the church. 
Notice too here in this passage, the Lord promised wages, joy, and fruit for eternal life. Wages communicates that our work is not for nothing. It may seem as though all the seed you sow falls on shallow ground or on the hard soil or that the birds come and eat it away, but you'll never know the influence you have on some people. Now, I would gather that all of you have been a Christian for a while. You've had, you can look at, you know, and say, you, I think I've influenced that person or that person thanked me for leading them to Christ or something like that. But you really have no idea what kind of influence you're having on people. And in, in a sense, all of us have a John the Baptist kind of thing going on where we're never going to see uh, the fruit of ministry. Uh, it, maybe it comes through your children uh, as you give birth to someone who is going to make a greater impact of, than you. Uh, and, but the Lord says, hey, you'll receive wages. And of course, we could talk about uh, the, the great things that happen to us on earth now in terms of having a, an expanded, extended family and all the other benefits we have uh, in living life. And then he says, joy accompanies harvesting. We live in the church age between Pentecost and the Lord's return to resurrect and rapture his church. All over the world, all of the time, condemned people who are a heartbeat away from hell are getting saved. Thus, we've got joy. The Apostle Peter calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory. And fruit for eternal life looks forward to our rewards in heaven and the untouchable investments we make there serving our Lord. Two worldviews are made apparent at the well. The disciples returned to the well and saw a despised Samaritan woman interrupting their journey. Jesus saw a soul in despair and in distress, thirsty for God. Pollster George Barna reported last year, and I quote, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. He's talking about Christians. Last September, the Cultural Research Center revealed survey data compiled in January 2020 that showed 2% of millennials hold a biblical worldview, even though 61% identify as Christians. And so most people and the majority of Christians identify as Christians, do not have what we would consider a biblical worldview. We need to lift our eyes as an exhortation uh, to do what needs to be done right now and, and continue to share the gospel. And so, uh, secondly, you live your life to seed the harvest. The reapers, uh, excuse me, the reaped become reapers. The Samaritan woman returned to Sychar and announced that she had met the Messiah. It's one of several reasons we can safely say she was saved. She couldn't wait to introduce others to her Lord. And so verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus had offered her living water. Leaving her water pot, uh, water pot excuse me, signified that well water was now secondary to spiritual things. It was indicative she believed Jesus. If you were la uh, saved later in life, you probably had the experience of leaving some water pots behind. They may have been habits that no longer controlled you, may have been influences or influencers who would hinder you rather than help you grow in the Lord. But whatever you were needing or doing, uh, you know, sometimes physical things. I know I got we got rid of a bunch of books and we got rid of a bunch of records, uh, which I could sell on eBay now, but uh, 
then there's that thing, well, should I throw this away because it's carnal or give it to the goodwill? You know? so, but anyway, you just kind of got rid of a bunch of stuff. All the water pots were gone because you had something greater. The woman said to the men, in ancient cities, the leading men would hang out in a particular spot. They would be at the gates if the city was big enough to be walled. There they could be approached by the regular folk to hear and settle disputes, answer questions, etc. It was kind of a, a legal uh, kind of thing where you know people had their uh, cases heard and things like that, and the elderly leaders would make a, a determination. It was probably to those men that the Samaritan woman spoke. It would have been mind-blowing for her to do so. Being seen with her was unacceptable. Spiritually speaking, however, she was no longer that same woman. There would have been something about her, a spiritual change, that held the attention of the men. And so, you know, this is a small town, a village, probably not walled, and the guys are hanging out doing whatever they do and talking to people and you know, all that. And here comes the Samaritan woman, and they all know who she is and what she is. And uh, if you're smart, you would send one of your associates, say, hey, she seems to be coming towards us. You need to deal with this right now before she gets any closer. If my wife knows I talk to her, oy vey, it's over. You know, and stuff. And yet she, she comes, maybe it wasn't these men, but, you know, we're, we're supposing it could have been. And she comes right up and she starts talking to them. She interrupts them besides do you understand what's going on? This woman who's a serial adulterer who's living with a man that's not her husband, who's despised, comes up and starts talking to the men, which even regular women didn't do. She had come to the well at noon to avoid the other women. Now she was speaking to the men. I submit that the woman at the well is the most overlooked example of boldness in the New Testament. This kind of boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. And so verse 30, then they went out of the city and came to him. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all I ever did. Ten minutes old, let's say, a very baby Christian, she shared what she knew about Jesus. It was enough for others in Sychar to believe and receive the Lord. As I like to tell us every week or so, you know enough to introduce Jesus to someone. If you're a believer, you know enough to introduce Jesus to someone else. Uh, verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Jesus' disciples would never have thought that going through Samaria meant staying there for a couple of days, right? And we sometimes do, we think that way. You know, we, everything hinges on a certain word. You said we were going through Samaria. Well, we are, but I didn't say how long it was going to take us to get through Samaria. And so we're always trying to hold God to these, you know, and he's smarter than us. And so, you know, he's going to win every argument like that. Jesus' disciples were, were getting their minds blown as well. Now, one of the obvious lessons drawn from their delay is that we ought to be ready for interruptions and delays. But there's another side to that. Staying in Sychar meant that they would not get to their planned destination as soon as was expected. It would be delayed at least by two days. People and things you think you need from the Lord may be delayed or they may not arrive at all. You might not get that phone call from a friend or that visit from a minister. It could be that those people are slacking 
But it is just as likely that God wants to show you that he is everything to you. Later in the Gospel of John, the Lord will hear that his friend Lazarus is sick unto death. The Lord purposely delays going to Lazarus. Lazarus dies during that delay. Of course, in the end, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and uttered the precious promise, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. By the way, just as an aside, when Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, he's talking about believers who are going to be alive at his coming to raise the dead. He's talking about the rapture, uh, which is often overlooked. And so Jesus delayed on purpose so that there could be uh, a greater glory. Uh, and, and there are going to be times in my life and in your life when there is a delay so that there can be greater glory or things don't come at all so that there can just be a trusting of the Lord. God the Holy Spirit lives in you. He comes alongside you as your comforter and counselor in ways no human being can. He is in every way more real than the physical world. God will withhold people and things you think you need to show you that you actually don't. You don't need them. Verse 41, and many more believe because of his own word. After his resurrection, Jesus was with two of his disciples as they returned to Emmaus from Jerusalem. You might remember in the story, he hid his identity from them. They didn't see that it was the Lord raised from the dead. As they walked, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so on that walk, Jesus started in Genesis and uh, went right through to uh, the end of their scriptures, showing him or telling them every passage that spoke of the Messiah, that spoke of himself. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, God, now see, I was there. Uh, I, I created everything. And then he'd go through, and it's a marvelous Bible study, by the way. But just think of how much Jesus could share in a couple of days, how much they would know. I mean, if they were giving out seminary degrees, these guys, what a blessing to live in Sychar and to know for a fact what all of these passages meant and how to interpret them. It's fantastic. It should not be lost on us that one of the Lord's most exciting, most fulfilling, most successful ministries was to Samaritans despised by Jews. Jesus once said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He had come to offer Israel the kingdom of God on earth. That kingdom, however, was open to any Samaritan and all Gentiles. It is for whoever will believe. The gospel is a universal call to all men for the universal problem of sin. All this was challenging but life-changing for Jesus' Jewish disciples who had never had dealings with Samaritans and grew up despising them. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. It sounds like a put-down. It's not. God used the woman to bring them to hear Jesus. Hearing him, they too believed. It's not unlike inviting your friend or family to church. Uh, you know, I remember getting saved, and then you started inviting everybody to church. 
you know, because they would challenge you. What do you mean? You well, come to church with me and hear, you know, what the, I, I think that guy up front knows a little bit more than I do. And, and so, and that's what's going on here. They said, oh, you know, you, you testified, but now we've heard right from Jesus and we know that it's true. Since the spiritual harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, it is incumbent on us to submit our plans to the Lord's plans. It's going to mean something different to each of us, and so I can't really speak to uh, a, a perfect example. But most of us work in some capacity, and you work to buy food and pay for your life, and if you're blessed, you also enjoy what you're doing. If there are non-believers, where you work is a field that is white for harvest. That's what Jesus would say. He'd say, look, in, look at your office, look at your staff, look at, you know, however you uh, want to look at it, and say they are white for harvest. It doesn't matter the spiritual condition, you know, it's just the general worldview you have is that if they're not Christians, they need to become Christians. That's a basic foundational thing. Uh, and so the harvest includes sowing spiritual seed and possibly reaping someone else's sowing because God is always moving in trying to bring people to Christ. And so uh, maybe there's somebody that, you know, has never heard anything about Jesus Christ or maybe somebody grew up in the church but they're still not saved. But nevertheless, it's a harvest. You are to labor in that field as if every day was harvest until the Lord sends you to another one. The Lord might have you pass up a promotion. I've known Christians over the years who uh, they, you know, were offered a certain thing and they prayed about it and the Lord said no. He said stay because he had work for them to do or work to do in them. He might have you promoted earlier than you had planned. You might leapfrog many other people to get to a position where the Lord can use you. He may send you away from Kings County. He may not want you to leave. You need to write that down in your Bible. Everybody, I, I exaggerate, but everybody wants to leave Kings. I can't wait to get out of Hanford, you know. What if God doesn't want you to? You know, we talk about, people say, well, if I trust the Lord, he'll send me to the deepest, darkest place in Africa and be a missionary. Uh, he's liable to just leave you here. Or send you to Riverdale. You can still live here, though. But that's the idea. Our, our life is not our own. This is what we mean when we say our life doesn't belong to us anymore. And so if I'm a harvester, the Lord knows where the harvest is and where I can be best used in the harvest. It might be right where I'm at. It might be down the street. It might be around the world. It doesn't matter as long as we're in touch with the Lord. Tramp told lady to look again. Jesus is telling us, lift up our eyes.